0: You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio.
1: you podcast Dirty Feet, les podcast de No More Radio. Hosted by... Animé par... Alison Burns... J.D. Papillon... Et Joanie
2: Stay tuned.
0: We're going to move you.
2: This week on the Dirty Feet podcast, we are celebrating the launch of a brand new dance company, Parts and Labor Dance. This is a choreographic collaboration between David Albert Toth and Emily Gualtieri, and uh, it's definitely got some interesting flavors to it. From what I understand, David brings a breakdance background, and Emily brings a formally trained classic ballerina background meeting at concordia university in their contemporary dance department beginning collaboration and uh starting to work together while they were there starting uh collaborations at around 2011 let's say and uh and now launching officially their co-choreographic co-artistic direction company parts and labor dance thank you both so much for joining us today Thank you.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: Maybe we can uh, flesh out those bios a little bit. Uh, it was really minimal right there, but let's, let's take the time to go to you, David. Let's start with, uh, with your background in dance and kind of that evolution from your, your hip-hop roots to where you are now mm-hmm. in kind of the contemporary world and, uh, and how dance and, and its meaning has changed for you.
0: So uh like you said, I, I did start in the the street dance world, um, exploring urban dances and uh I came to dance through popping originally. Uh after seeing the Daft Punk video for Around the World. <laughs> back when i was a teenager and sucked at everything and that quickly grew into uh into a love of all of those dances popping house locking what a lot of people call hip-hop so more like freestyle and as i started going to raves uh when i was a little older a lot of the underground raves that were happening that's actually when the uh when that all happened, it wasn't really in a formal setting. I would see a lot of the guys who you'd see in the scene in ciphers and in classes and workshops in the jungle and drum and bass room at the rave, and they would just be throwing down in in less of a battle format. And so that always spoke to me a lot more. So I never got too deep into the breaking scene, um, in large part because of the whole battle idea, um, never really connected that much to it, and always connected more to the free-form sharing idea that was happening at these raves at like four in the morning, but loved the technique and loved the sharing of it, and so that pushed me to, through the education of it and, and learning those dances, and it got to a point where I was teaching a lot and, and working a lot in, in that area, and a friend told me, uh, there's this show that I want you to see. And so I went to go see this show, and it was a Belgian troupe um, at C and the show was called Bobo in Paradise, and they were called Hush, Hush, Hush Productions. And it was a company similar to a company like Destin Croisé, which has a mix of urban dancers and contemporary dancers, and uses that in a theatrical setting to explore more conceptual work. And the show really spoke to me at the time, and I realized that that's, for me, what was missing at the time was this idea of being able to explore more conceptual work with the movement. So I went to Concordia, and with no formal training, well, a lot of formalized training, but not what we call formal training, so you know, ballet, uh, modern jazz, all of that stuff, went in there and got to work. Caught up on a lot of the technique that I was missing, and for the first few years was out of school, I was really focused on developing a, a hybrid inspired by companies who, at the time, were on the rise like Rubber Band Dance Group, uh, Solid State was doing a lot of the, uh, that kind of work. And um, through some mentorships with Helen Simard and Victor Quijada, started to really get into this idea of the hybrid form and trying to find my voice within that. In the last few years, I've moved away from that um, a considerable amount. It's still there in my movement, and it's something that, as with a ballet-trained dancer, there are certain things you won't necessarily escape in terms of your capacities and what that allows you to bring to your movement research. So my history is still there and it's very present in my movement, but it's less at the forefront of my choreographic work right now, especially since joining with Emily, who's here next to me. we There was a, a clear decision made whether or not we were going to focus more heavily on the physical research of it or on what we were saying with our work and allow the physical research to be a tool for that. And so... While that is still present in my in in who I am as a dancer and a choreographer, it's less at the forefront now than it was a few years ago
2: and perhaps that's the perfect segue into emily can we can we talk a bit about your background before kind of this collaboration began?
3: My background is so different from david's. I uh, started dancing when I was four. My mother brought me to pick up my sisters from a modern class and uh The moment I saw it, I fell in love, and I was right at the front of the class, just dancing with everybody else, and uh, I begged my mom to put me into classes, and uh, finally she did. She enrolled me at Canadian Children's Dance Theatre, and right away, I started kind of moving up through the ladders, and someone had approached my mom that if I really wanted to do this, then I should probably audition for the National Ballet School and I did and I'm not really sure how or why I was accepted but I was uh, and that kind of began a really intense rigorous training for me um, for a number of years I was in the full-time program for four years and at the end of those four years I physically started to change quite a bit and that wasn't really conducive to uh, the ballet aesthetic and so uh, I left the National Ballet School and returned to Canadian Children's Dance Theatre. And, and through that, I kind of realized, being like a young teenager, that I, I wasn't quite sure anymore. I'd been dancing since I was four, and I was doing it at a really high elite level. And I wasn't sure that that was what I wanted to do anymore. Uh, so I left dance altogether for four years and I pursued acting and I pursued singing and then on a really like on a whim came to Montreal to visit uh, a girlfriend's sister who was enrolled at the Concordia Dance Department and uh, before watching the show I was told that they were all student choreographies and a part of their degree they got to choreograph their own works twice a year. And I watched the show, and everyone had different training. Everyone had different body types, and I was like, "Wow, this is where I want to be uh so I auditioned for Concordia, and that's where I met david and at the David and I were in the same class, and we were polar opposites. Um, I had a ton of training, and I had no <laughs> I had no uh I wasn't comfortable with floor work. I wasn't comfortable with touching other people. Uh, and David was much more open than me. So right away, there was a, a mutual respect for one another, even though we came from extremely different backgrounds and different approaches to, to dance. Um, and finally, we were, I think in our second year of university, we were put in the same piece together. And that kind of started the dialogue. We talked a lot about dance and we talked a lot about firstly, we talked a lot about technique. I would say that was like the first year or two of our creative relationship was just understanding how to move your body. And then it kind of grew from there.
2: Obviously, there's a lot to discuss physically in in the combination of your two backgrounds. And in the description of the company, and and something that, David, you touched on earlier, you also explore a lot on the thematic side. Uh, It says here in the description, your mandate is to create engaging contemporary dance works that drive unapologetically into the rich moral complexities of the human condition. So can we talk a little bit about, about that and what that means to you and where that impulse comes? Comes
0: from. It's interesting sitting here, first of all, and you know, having spent all this time with this, with the idea of this launch, right, and and developing all of the all of the writing that you do to try to express what you do as your company, um, and then have someone read it back to you and say, okay, so now let's talk about. It. I think that's very cool. Um, I'm very into that. So the first part of that is that what's important for us is to create engaging work, um, and that we want to make work that draws people in, that has um, an open door to it. Um, For lack of a better term, I'd say a low level of prerequisite knowledge or experience. You don't need to be, we try not to make work that uh, you need to be an expert to grasp. Ideally, our work is, still brings a lot to the dance connaisseur um and people who have who know dance and and where it's at now but it's important for us also that it it spans more than that that it remains accessible the idea of diving unapologetically uh that was a word that i think we were we specifically chose the idea of unapologetic being unapologetic in what you do because everyone's a critic Um, Everyone's a critic and everyone always has something to say about your work. And that's great. And I think everyone should be a critic to some degree because it means that you're comfortable with your interpretation of what you're seeing. And I'd hope that more people can come to see dance, which right now I don't feel is a really super open art form for the general public, and be encouraged to see what they see and, and believe in that. The flip side to that is that, yes, everyone has an opinion and the idea of doing things for other people can be tricky and when you're in the performing arts you're doing things for yourself and you're doing things for other people so for me the idea of being unapologetic in what you choose to explore is the idea of saying okay well this is what i'm interested in and i'm going to go do it to the best that i can and once i'm once i'm dealing with the idea of a product then i'll be focused on how accessible it is and where my openings are for my public. But in terms of what I want to speak about, that's up to me as an artist, and, and I have to stay true to that and be unapologetic. And if you don't like it, then I'm not sorry, because it's what interests me. And all the better. you know. I think everyone, uh, if everyone approaches their art and their craft with that kind of attitude, then you have people with conviction and people talking about what they truly care about, and that's the whole point. So now what do we talk about? This idea of the human condition can be a, a, quite a general term, and to a certain extent we've chosen to keep it that way because we don't want to only speak about one particular thing, but this idea of the human condition and what it means to be a human and a self-conscious being amongst other self-conscious beings touches on what really interests us in terms of our conceptual content. And that is how how do we see ourselves and how do we act with others in the world? And how does that all work? So there's a number of things that happen there, but what it really calls into question are the moral implications of what it means to be a person in society. How do we love? How do we treat other people? How do we establish who we are in qualitative and quantitative ways, whether it's your career and how much money you're making and the kind of car you drive or whether it's the books you read or the movies you see and the music you listen to or whether it's what you think and your political stances. Where you stand on all of those things come to shape who you are and that then comes into play with how you deal with other people and other people who don't have your priorities or other people who do have your priorities. So this idea of the human condition for me is this idea of being dropped in and having to deal right like there's there comes a point in your life where you wake up a bit and you see okay this is what's happening this is what it's all about and you're no longer worried about getting from your fifth to sixth period uh or your you know your uh your after-school activities or soccer match or any of those things you know you start to grow up a bit and develop a level of empathy and i'm not talking about being like 27 you know this happens pretty early on you know generally we're teenagers when we start to develop these these uh reflexes in terms of seeing the world a bit differently so for me the human condition is is speaks to that but that's something that i think that is a big deal to talk about like that's a big it's an all-encompassing thing like there are like hugely respected philosophers that deal with like a small part of that so there's this other idea of like who are we to talk about such a vast thing and that brings in the idea of being unapologetic about it of saying well it's up to anybody anybody can talk about it if they want to and this is what we want to talk about
2: i have a new respect for the word unapologetically i like that a lot your philosophy on that okay so this starts to flesh out a little bit uh when we move on to In Mixed Company, which is the work you're going to be presenting at Tangente next month, Uh, perhaps you could let us know how this concept of morality and uh, the human condition manifests in this work, which is very much concentrated on that, I assume.
3: Actually, the conversation about In Mixed Company started uh, after our previous creation called the Calculated Risk Project. And that dealt with... uh, interdependence of two interpreters, either two women or two men. Dave and I started to question starting from movement or starting from content. And so specifically for InMix Company, we decided we would start from content, something that spoke to us, something that resonated with everything we were just talking about, about the human condition and what our role is in society and how we want to uh, perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. And uh, we started kind of looking at um, specifically David's history. Um, And he has a very interesting family history to do with, like, tied to communism and World War II and, you know, all of these kind of uh, really interesting family historical events that took place. And through that, there was something that continued to come up, and that was two writers who also had similar histories of coming from communist regimes and then residing in France, Milan Kundera and Eugene Unescu, who um, started making work at that time in France. Uh, They kind of lump that and call it the Theatre of the Absurd. And that was work that started to come up over and over again. And it basically deals with the absurdity that life is. And uh, we started to think that it would be a really great place to start from within a dance context. What is it to be in an illogical reality? What is it to have communication or dialogue with people that can at one time be deeply profound and also completely fleeting. That was the, that was kind of the springboard for InMix Company. And then, of course, once you start getting into the studio with your collaborators, your interpreters, the work starts to take its own
1: path. Um, how did you choose the dancers? Or were they involved in the creative process and the discussions? I'm sure you've had plenty of to start the the creation
3: yes and no definitely deciding on the content uh was between david and i and initially we used that to apply for funding but we had sat down and and carefully decided who we would really like to be working with and who we felt could embody what we're looking for um What we're looking for is somebody who's completely able-bodied and uh, understands their facility, but is also incredibly comfortable being present, vulnerable, and even possibly aggressive at certain points uh, in the work. We've been working with Jody Hagel for a long time.
0: Since the beginning?
3: Since the beginning. so for me personally, uh, I, I felt like our relationship is still evolving, and that was very important for her to be there, and that was no question. And the same was for milan Penegigon. We felt like we just started to kind of open up a line of understanding and communication. And with those two dancers, interpreters, collaborators, to us, in the best way possible, they're also an investment Dave and I are are trying as much as possible to develop our own movement vocabulary, pedagogy, you know, all of those words as you start to develop your choreographic voice. And because they're starting with us and they're growing with us, um, you start to see that. So there was no question that we wanted them to be in the work. As for Caroline Gravel... To be honest, she was a shot in the dark. I mean, she's incredible. She's committed. She's forward-thinking. She's innovative in her own right as a creator and as a performer. I think it was a bit of a long shot that she was going to say yes, but she did. And we're pretty thankful for that. And we started with Andrew Turner, who we always wanted to work with. His charm, his ability to command An audience but also being able to balance masculinity and vulnerability was something that really interested us specifically for this work and he also joined the team until of course he injured his knee and uh, for us there was no question that Lil Stalick was equally those qualities as well but he offers
2: something very different in both of those qualities it's clear to see the kind of creative relationships that you have with your performers and how the necessity of that. I'm wondering also in terms of physicality because you have such distinctive trainings and also the theatricality that I understand is in your work. What capacity do you need your performers to have to be able to perform what you want them to do or do you work with within their capacities?
0: It boils down to a a number of things that you just mentioned, but all of those are right on the money. The most important thing, I think, for us to understand comes back to also the kind of content that we're trying to work with, which is understanding that everybody's different. Everybody works in a different way. Everyone has something different to bring to the process. In the same way that Emily and I bring different things to the creative process, so do the people you work with. There's a fundamental factor in how we choose to work with people and it's the idea that people aren't replaceable and I think that's something that I would love to see encouraged even more in the milieu it becomes difficult when you start working in a certain way you need people and you have you know show contracts to respect and things like that but there's something in the attitude of how you work with people that I think is very important and I think people need to feel that they're not replaceable And it's not just for how they feel. It's important that as the person offering the opportunity for work, that that is a genuine thing that you feel. And I think you can feel that. And for us, it's really at the heart of it, is that people are not replaceable. So I'll explain. And this comes back to also what you were talking about in terms of the the theatricality versus the dance training versus how do we kind of make this all happen, because it all comes down to the people you work with. The people you work with will inevitably shape your work and that's why Emily and I choose to work the way we do and putting a great deal of value towards the what our dancers bring to the process in terms of what we need from them. There is, as Emily said, a great deal of physical facility and an understanding of their facility, which is the big deciding factor. Someone can have a great deal of facility and not necessarily understand it. So that becomes uh, an important turning point in someone's uh, self-development, I think, that we hold very important because we challenge it. And so, the person has to be able to be comfortable with that. Someone like Jody, who we've worked with for a very, very long time, has both a dance and a theater background. So, she's able to dive very deeply into the things that we want to work with. Milan Pan de um, has a huge physical facility, and I think he's at a, a really interesting place right now of self-discovery and, and self-awareness in terms of how to best use this facility. And he is incredibly generous in the parts of himself that he brings versus a more formal training in terms of how can I express this emotion or that emotion? He'll go get it within himself. With Caroline, Caroline's role began as a replacement role. And this is an interesting thing that I'd like to touch on, this idea of replacement. And when we were looking to replace someone who finally couldn't be in our project because of scheduling, I told Emily that I had a few prerequisites, and the person, like we said, had to have a great facility and understanding of their facility, be able to express themselves almost without limit and be able to burn the place down. We needed someone who at the at the snap of a finger, would be able to light a match and burn the place down
2: is this the the aggressiveness that you were talking about earlier, like the just the, the, potential the no holds aggressive.
0: barred. It's okay. like just the let's let you want to burn the place down. Let's burn the place down, man. Let's do it. And and Emily said, I think I've got your person. So we met Caroline and within a few minutes of meeting her, I was like, of course, of course. It's that gut kind of feeling. And so that, that was great because she she brings something very different. We haven't worked with her before ever. And that's very exciting. It's uh, it's building trust from the ground up. It's building an understanding when you come from uh, different schools of thought, literally, and different art practices, and how do you meet in the middle and talk about a common theme. Coming back to the idea of people being replaceable or not, when we cr- got to that, the crossing of the bridge when Andrew injured himself and we had to sit down and, and consider what we were going to do now, it became important that we found someone who wouldn't simply replace Andrew, but would be able to step in and take their own place within the work. And without disrespecting the people who leave, you have to find room to respect the people who join. And you have to give them their place. And sometimes that means discarding material that you held dear before in order to embrace a new presence. And a new presence, especially when you're not dealing with a team of, you know, 36 people, but you're dealing with four people, well, that one person represents 25% of the work. And so that's a big shift. That's a different energy coming in. And I feel very fortunate because we've gotten to work with Lael before and we know him very well from for many, many years. So there's already a good deal of trust there, which made the transition more fluid. But it's that, it's that idea of embracing the new presence and embracing the new group because the group itself changes. So all these people bring this comfortability or knowledge of themselves to the table physically. They all have great uh, facility and an, an awareness of their facility. And they're all very generous in that they are willing to open themselves up and bring parts of themselves to the work. And that applies not only from them to us as choreographers, but them to each other, which is equally important. And then that makes it so that we as choreographers have to do the same. We have to be clear in our physical propositions, either what we're teaching or what we're proposing and asking them to generate themselves, as well as what parts of ourselves we're opening up to this process and what do we want to say and how can we be clear about that. And that that's a beautiful mess. It's a beautiful, beautiful mess that you then have to you know, sort through and organize. And that's, for me anyway, that's the process, right? That's the beautiful thing is how do you take all of these things and get everyone on the same page together but the, dan- the dancers who we're, we call dancer collaborators because they really contribute to the creation of the work and in French we call it, we're trying to move away from interprete and more towards danseur et collaborateur à la création really are that they are the performers the dancers and they are wholeheartedly collaborators in the creation because of this attitude that we all have towards a, a common idea
1: Did you want to dance in your piece? No. No? No. No.
0: No. Throughout school, uh, that always happened. I always had these grandiose ideas, and then someone would get injured or have to drop the piece or this or that or the other. Uh, And inevitably, I would always end up dancing in my own work. Um, And that was something that happened until Emily and I started working together when the focus became on the collaborative creation. And for this piece... It was, again, kind of the running joke when we when we needed recently to find a, a new fourth dancer. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I even said, you know, worse comes to worse, I can step in. And I only said, no way are you stepping in. So it's now important to begin separating that two.
1: So what about La Chute, then?
0: La Chute is a different story. Um, La Chute is a solo that I dance. And... I think that's different because it's not a group piece. It's really a more personal journey. So it becomes, in my opinion, it becomes very difficult to be within a group piece and be a choreographer. Um, And if you're working as two choreographers and one of them is in the piece and one of them is out, then one person is always forced to, in some instances, be on the dancer team and on other times be on the choreographer team. And I think it, It's doable. It's definitely doable, but it's not something that we were interested in exploring right now. So for La Chute, it's different because it brings everything back down to its core. It's really just me and Emily in the studio. Um, And of course, there's a great deal of trust, a great deal of intimacy there where we can really go deep and explore and not worry about schedules uh, and things like that in terms of the exterior factors. And then also not worry about Things that we may not think we worry about, but I think we do. Things like judgment and do these are these people actually interested by what I'm talking about? Uh, all these little like self doubt things that tend to happen sometimes. None of th- none of that's there because it's the two creators together working on on something. So it's it's a very different process.
2: And lashut is going to be performed alongside in mixed company at Tangent next month. And just to be clear, lashut is a collaborative choreography, but only David is performing, Mm -hmm. correct? Okay. Perhaps we can talk uh, briefly about the content of that work, because it's also been inspired by someone a little absurd.
0: La Chute was created in 2010, when Emily and I were approached to um, create a 15-minute solo that could act as an opening for Andrew Turner's Duet for One, plus digressions, throughout a Quebec tour. So Andrew called me and, and said, hey, uh, I'd, love, uh, I'd love for you, because we had toured with uh, the piece Autofiction. We had toured together already. And that's a work uh, by Milan-Gervais. And Milan-Gervais makes a, an appearance at the end of Duet for One. Spoiler alert. But most of you have already seen it. <laughs> um, but, uh, so the tour would have essentially been the three of us plus whoever was doing our lighting. In, in that case, it was Tim Rodriguez or um, Catherine Legault. So it made sense, you know. We had toured together. We it we knew how to kind of do that thing. So Andrew called me up and he said, "Hey, you know, uh, you and Emily have just started working together. I know, and maybe you guys have like something ready to go—a fifteen-minute solo that could be kind of an opening act, something nice and physical, you know, um get it going type deal." So I said, "Yeah, we totally have one. We didn't." So. It was at a time too um, when I had just recently lost my father, and then a few months earlier, his father. So, from a personal place, there was I was going through a period where I was, um, I'd say, immediately disconnected from my paternal lineage, if I if that can give a sense of uh, again this idea of what I was talking about earlier—the human condition being dropped down into a into a world and having to deal and figuring it out as you go. It was kind of the place that I was in. And so we worked from that place. And we had some material already. La Chute, as it was, became a bastard child of some pre-existing material that we reconfigured, and then some new material that we created around this new concept. And so this character became inspired by traits that I had pulled from my father and my grandfather. And then... I was just starting to get into the Theater of the Absurd at the time, and I was reading uh, Rhinoceros by Ionesco. And so there were other traits that were pulled from the Béranger character, who's the main character in that work, and a number of other Ionesco works. And so we created this character, and we sent it to go, uh, and it toured. It did a, you know about a dozen cities, and it was great. The piece was able to grow then also while on tour, which was interesting because Emily wasn't present. It, it then became up to me to... Uh, gérer l'affaire, like to just uh, keep everything together and keep it alive and try new things. And it's beautiful because it's a solo, so you can do all that stuff. You know, if you want to change something on the fly, you have that liberty. But we knew that we were onto something that we wanted to explore in a way that was more true to our process and really make a quote-unquote real work out of it. And we felt that it was vite fait. And it was a good piece. I think a lot of great work is made vite fait. Uh, quickly done, you know, quick, um, rough and ready. And that is a certain element that we like to have, but we felt that this deserved more time and a more uh, posed exploration of things. So the work... Uh, It pulls from, uh, officially we say it pulls from rhinoceros, um, not from, you know, the personal side of things, because in terms of the theatricality and all of that, it does pull a lot from the theater of the absurd and from what this character goes through. If you're not familiar with the work, uh, let's do a real quick Coles notes. Uh, This guy is in this town. People start turning into rhinoceroses. It's crazy. People are... Objecting and saying it 's horrible, and this shouldn 't happen, and we should chase them all out, and yada yada yada, but more and more people become kind of infected and become rhinoceroses and the The underlying parallel is um, is political thought and political allegiance to things that are uh, should have no bearing but but as more and more people fall into the the discourse, then more and more people start thinking that, okay, well, this is a legitimate way of of acting or being. And in a very, you know, UNESCO-esque type way, uh, he expressed this as people all of a sudden becoming rhinoceroses, rhinoceri, I don't don't even know, many of the rhinoceroses, (laughs) Um, until there's only one person left. And this guy, Beranger, who's fighting the good fight, eventually becomes the only human left, and so unable to reproduce and keep the human race going, and then you see his perception shift and the the big kind of monologue explores this shift that happens within him when he begins to change from seeing them as these hideous ugly beasts that are destroying everything to seeing the beauty in them and the beauty in their tough gray skin and their horn and he tries and he tries and he tries to become a rhinoceros and kent and so it's this its this shift that happens that it becomes really interesting, this conviction that he has the whole time, that then at the very end, when he's faced alone with his convictions, face to face with everybody else who holds a different conviction, who's now a rhinoceros, um, what that does to him and how that begins to change. And so it became interesting to look at how ephemeral, essentially, this idea of self-identity is because it is literally what makes us who we are and it's our convictions and it's what we project into the world. And yet it's ever-changing. As we learn new things, we grow and we change our outlook. And sometimes as a result of our own choices and sometimes um, less ideally from social pressure or political pressure, I think it's a work that is very relevant in terms of what we're going through now as a society, with a lot of the shifts that are happening. And a lot of people are voicing a lot of different opinions with regards to them, um, which I think is very healthy. And I think th- it's, it's very relevant, yeah, to, to what's happening now. I think that the theater of the absurd in general is very relevant to what's happening now. Um, and I think for us, it's a very interesting time to, to bring that back.
3: I just want to be clear, though, that uh, the piece has nothing to do with rhinoceroses. (laughs) I mean, the things that Dave has been talking about, I mean, that's just inspiration. What you choose to do with that has Mm
0: -hmm.
3: nothing to do with... uh, It's not about replicating things that have happened in the theater of the absurd. It's more like, how do those things resonate in you? And then from your imagination, what do you then propose? Um, so I feel like La Chute is actually starting at the end of that, which is like, what's left? Who are you when there's nothing around? When you're not around others, like, what, what are your dark obsessions? Like, what are the things that you question? What are the things that you're searching for? Those I think are, are, are more interesting to me than the individual versus the rest of society. But you need to have that kind of... You almost need to have that backstory to be able to know where to start. You know, the same way that Dave's like, we drop in. So that's kind of like things that we're explaining. That's our research. That's what we do, you know, behind the scenes before we get to rehearsal. Uh, And then things, things start from there once we are in the studio. And they don't necessarily stay that way. Because we're still in dance we need to start developing what those things look like in the body. Then that also changes how we then craft and how we look at that. And so, for example, if um, you know Dave's just throwing paper airplanes into the air, well, what does that have to do with identity? Maybe nothing. So it's also like letting letting the ideas happen in the studio sometimes are totally different than the research that you do before. But having a consciousness of your material and of your content will therefore bring up things uh, in the studio that are inspired by your content, but not necessarily directly related or replicating uh, a movement um, in time.
0: Yeah, because I think that's something that's important for us dealing with a movement that, uh, an, an artistic movement that's already happened. We're not trying to recreate the theater of the absurd, nor are we trying to put uh, Kundera's novels on a stage. I think the real idea exactly. is to take these themes and try to embody them as deeply as possible and, and digest them and let it fill your mind and your heart and all of the things that make you create work and then go into the studio with that feeling and create new work from there
3: and create something that's our own yeah it's not related to anyone else
2: and as you said right off the bat you don't as an audience member you don't need to have foreknowledge to be exactly. able to exactly exactly
3: it's almost it's almost become a little bit uh i wouldn't say uncomfortable to talk about our sources but i i irrelevant uh, well i feel like we've come so far from them as i said like once we started working with the group and we started working uh, in the studio, the work then takes its own path and you start listening to that and you start making choices about how you want to craft those ideas from what's been happening right in front of your face. And you need to kind of like let go of some things that are previous to that at some Mm -hmm. point. If If you're really listening to the opportunities that are given to you as a creator... So, yeah, sometimes I'm kind of like, well, that's not really important anymore. <laughs> but there's key things that are important, like um, the individual versus the group is really important to me. Opposition is, is very important in our work. Uh, we talk about two words for in mixed company, which are dissonance and desire. And then for La Chute, it's really about f- the ephemeral search for one's identity. And those are still broad things, but um, they're they're at least a little bit looser and more up for interpretation. Something that Dave and I talked about last night is that for me as a choreographer, it's really important for it to be loose enough that people can have their own imagination when watching dance. Like it, they don't have to be like, okay, yeah, I see the rhinoceros coming down the stage. Oh, that's at the point where this is going to happen. I don't. I want people to go on their own journey with it. And if it's clear enough for us on the outside to be able to make those decisions and it's clear enough for the performers to have their intention, then it shouldn't matter if our ideas are seen the way that we want them to, but that they're just seen and understood in a way for the audience to receive something and make their own conclusions about what they're experiencing.
0: Because we try to keep in mind that we create work from our own personal place, but the audience will come in with their own baggage. And it's important for us to leave room for that and not to spell everything out in terms of what we're trying to say, but say it in a way that, like Emily said, is clear for us, but allows them the room to create their own reading. And that oftentimes is way more interesting, (laughs) what they come in with. And some of the feedback you get oftentimes is a lot more interesting than than getting, oh, I really got what you were saying, and it was really, really clear. It's always way more interesting for me to hear, I saw this, I felt this, when it has even less to do with what you're dealing with, to an extent.
2: It's easy to imagine the benefit of two artists coming together to brainstorm and expand ideas. It's harder to see how you would negotiate, as co-choreographers, the kind of narrowing down of work as you're getting closer to a finished product, how do you even start? How does that actually happen?
3: Well, uh, for the last few processes, Dave and I have separated the schedule. So uh, Dave will work half the week with the dancers on whatever he whatever he's inspired to create. And the other half of that week, I will do the same with the with the same group of dancers. And then later in the process, we'll start to actually watch what each other have created. And I'll take Dave's material, and I will reformat it, reshape it, edit it, cut things out, and he'll do the same for me. So right away, we're completely disregarding ownership of material. And that's really important for us. It's more important that the dancers are the only ones, the, the only people that know all the material. So if anybody kind of, I wouldn't say owns, but has an understanding of the full body of material, it's the, it's the dancers. So that's how we start. Then to decide and negotiate, because we've gotten rid of ownership of material, it's a lot easier to be like, no, this has its place, even if it's my baby. And I've let go of my babies, you know? Like, it's it has nothing to do then with, like, one person needs to say something. It really does become about what's best for the work. That also being said, we work with people on the outside. So Janelle Chignon comes in, as well as Hannah DeRozio, and they also give their input. So there's a lot of discussion and cooperation going on on the inside and on the outside and we discuss a lot I mean like when we're in creation we're not just in the studio we're every pretty much every minute of every day talking about things we need to shift things we need to take out what if we looked at it in, through this lens what if we we did that and I feel that the reason we're still working together is because we're still learning a lot from one another and we have the ability to listen not only to each other, but to the work, to the people around us. And I don't think that we feel uncomfortable sticking to our intuition, our instincts, and our gut at the end of the day, but that we're making educational decisions on, on the creation and thus the product of what the piece becomes.
2: Now this structure must have changed at least slightly when it came to David's solo La chute, in which case, would your role, Emily, have been a little bit more of adjusting what he was doing as opposed to creating on David? Yeah,
3: that's a that, La Chute is a is is a good one to touch on because um, Dave brings a lot to the table because he has the direct knowledge of the content that we're dealing with. And what he gives me is he gives me that knowledge, and he really puts it in his body. And my job is to craft all the scenes and 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 make sure that the flow is just. But for La Chute, I would say more than anything, uh, I allow Dave to be the. I allow Dave to be the dancer, and I I do take more of a, a choreographic role. In particular for for where we're at with this solo right now but Dave gives me all of the he gives me all of the material to work with
0: it's an interesting balance because I think at times there's a role which is more of me being a choreographer dancer and needing Emily in as a rehearsal director and then other times when it's quite the opposite and like Emily was saying I need to focus on being a dancer and a creator from within and I need to give that responsibility over to Emily so that she can craft from the outside but it still remains a dialogue in terms uh, like like you were saying you know when we get to closer to the end of the process it still needs to be a dialogue in terms of things feeling a certain way from the inside versus the outside so there for me, there's a, there's a balance happening between my job as um, a dancer and what I need to have to really bring forth that product. If there are things missing on the inside or if I don't feel that a certain thing is right on the inside, that needs to be expressed. And then also being able to speak with Emily about it on the outside when I'm not dancing, when we're just speaking about it, looking over footage, talking about the, the progression of the piece, all of that stuff. It's a complex process that doesn't... It's not very cleanly cut. You know, it's always in a gray zone, which is nice. You just get these nice, like, varying shades of gray. About 50 50 shades of gray.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you find that since you graduated... To Now that you're starting your company, do you find that this time frame is kind of mandatory for artists and dancers coming out of schools to figure out what they want to do, who they are as dancers, before going into the creation of a company and having to deal with everything that goes with it, the administration, how to pay the dancers, when to dance, uh, I mean, when to perform, how how do you perform grant application and all that? Because now it seems that you're very, it's very clear what you say, it's very, your intentions are so clear, your opportunities are really blossoming. I think they, I feel like you were smart in your uh, parcours hmm. to start your company now rather than... When right we Graduated, out yeah, which a well, lot of people seem to do,
0: well, we did do the thing that everyone does when you 're fresh out of school and you start a collective um,
1: <laughs> we were a part of many collectives, but I, think.
0: I I think that's important i think it's it's the thing you it depends what you want to go towards if you want to go towards creation. Then I think it's a great idea. It teaches you to work with people. It teaches you a bunch of skill sets that you're not learning yet in school, be- simply because you're not working within the real world. You're not working with uh, contracts and you know, like just all all the things that kind of can't fail, in a sense, right? Like school still has to be that that supportive environment where you're allowed to fail and you're allowed to try things. So if you want to go in that direction, then yeah, I think it's great. Uh, I think we both left school hitting the ground running, um, and we just tried to get our work out there. We tried to get ourselves out there. That's the only way to do it, really. And then you're still going to fail. You're still going to make a bunch of mistakes, and then you slowly get better at it with regards to... Having a a clear mandate and, and writing more clearly about our ideas, I think that also takes practice and that takes failing. I know that when we're in school or fresh out of school and we're face to face with this big wall of what it is to be in front of a professional career in the arts where things aren't very clearly laid out for you. I know a lot of people feel like, oh, well, you know, I wish that we could have had more grant writing uh, lessons in school or administration classes or learn how to balance a budget and all that stuff. And I think that's all very valid. But I still think that now a few years in, and I can only speak for where we're at, which isn't incredibly far either, Um, we're still kind of at the beginning. We're seeing now that it, it's such a subjective process to write a grant application, to write about yourself, to figure out what you want to say, what, and then how are you going to say it, that I feel like it's really something that you can only do best by just diving in.
3: unapologetically (laughs)
0: unapologetically um but it's kind of like i don't know i i'm i'm also a dj and i'm just starting to get into music and i see a lot of the same stuff with a lot of these like there are a lot of dj schools coming out these like schools that will teach you how to dj and stuff and i think they're really cool but you hear a lot of the same things from a lot of the guys who have been around since before these things existed which is that look it's all fine and good but at the end of the day, you're going to have to get out there. You're going to have to get out there and play a stage. You're going to have to get out there and play a crowd. And you're going to have to sharpen your teeth and gain your knowledge that way. So at the end of the day, I think it's important to, once you're out of there, like I said, hit hit the ground running and just do, just do, do, do. Um, because that's really how... You know, you get somewhere. You said you had liked our site. Well, you should have seen our last site. Our last site sucked. Uh, okay, I got No, okay, no, no. It no, didn't but suck. I mean, it didn't suck. But, I mean, we got a lot of notes for it. Um, simple things that we thought were great that, you know, so you learn and you grow. And it, when you see people in a certain way, it never happens just like that. There's always so much work that goes into it that you don't see. Uh, years, years of work.
3: Because it's through those years that you start defining. Defining what you want and and how you want to say it. I mean, what your choreographic voice is, what your aesthetic is. And I think that it is constantly changing. And there's, I don't think that we, we deny that, you know? Like maybe in a few years, we'll be at a completely different place and we'll redo the, you know, we'll redo the website again and it will you know, be a grey background or a black background. Like I think it's representing where you are at now in your path and respecting that you still have a long way to go, but you've also come a long way as
2: well. And that website, of course, is partsandlabordance with an S.com. And uh, that brings me to the question how did you come up with that name for your company, Parts and Labor? Where did that come from?
3: My sister, who works in advertising, came up to Montreal, and uh, the three of us kind of sat down for a, a brainstorming session. And oddly enough, Dave David was really not in, interested in having a brainstorm session about kind of like naming the company. But after about 15 minutes, we started talking about our work and and how we feel about our work. And we often work with opposites, dissonance, desire, tenderness, threat. So things that are opposite from each other. So we knew we wanted to have two parts to describe our company. And uh, the first thing we came up with was actually bricks and mortar, like how things kind of come together. And I I can't remember if it was David or my sister who was like, well, what about parts and labor?
0: I think I came up with bricks and mortar and the three of us very quickly and collectively agreed that it sucked. (laughs) It was a really terrible name. But it was that idea of, like you said, putting things together and then... The next one that followed that, and again, kind of this idea of, you know, go through the process, like make your mistakes because your mistakes will lead you to what you want to have. Uh, We had to have that really terrible name of, no offense if anyone's called Bricks and Mortar out there. Uh, It's a really cool name. It just didn't work for us. But it brought us to the name that we have now, which is Parts and Labor. So Parts and Labor, to me, um, speaks to the process uh, which is something that I feel defines us is our process. The fact that we're two we're co-artistic directors and also that we're co-choreographers. That we're not a choreographer and a dancer in the company. It's a it's a relatively unique pairing, and so. Parts and labor, yeah, for me it, it's this idea that you know, when, when you bring something into a mechanic, uh, what you're really paying for is the parts and labor. The pieces that make up the thing and the work that it takes to put those pieces together into a unified whole that you don't necessarily see. Uh, what you see is the finished product, and what is important is that it runs smoothly and that this, that, and the other... But what you're actually paying for, the work that it happens behind the scenes that you are not privy to, ideally, is this idea of the process that goes into it. What's needed to make this thing, whether it's a tailored jacket or whether it's a well-running motorcycle. And so that, that became interesting to us because we're making work like everyone else is making work. And so we wanted, we wanted to somehow bring something out that had more of an emphasis on what makes us special. And that became our process.
2: That. Brings me to another point, if you don't mind me saying Excellent. so, that is uh, related to the uniqueness of your partnership, in that you are also in a romantic relationship, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm curious how that affects what the if there are benefits, if there are downfalls into your creative uh, work together.
0: Mm. Um, there are both. There are definitely both. I think it becomes it, well. I'll start with the bad, and then end on the good. How's that? Um, (laughs) because we're in a romantic relationship and creating work together, it means that you become oversaturated sometimes. And so you have to be careful about that because it's important that, um, I mean, we get along really well, so it's not a huge problem either. I think it'd be a lot worse if we were one of those couples who's like always bickering at each other and like always on each other's case. And then that, you know, came into the process and we were always like, you know, undercutting each other. Um, That could probably be a real nightmare.
2: And really Uh, awkward for the dancers. And really
0: awkward for the dancers. So fortunately, and I think maybe being friends for so long before we were in Like, we started working together as friends first, and then the romantic relationship happened later. And I will stress, not as a result of. Um, (laughs) But, um I think that that actually let us have this, this groundwork for how we were working together already and what interested us. And so the romantic relationship was able to happen kind of on its own. What it has brought is, of course, this idea that we have an intimate relationship with each other. The, the lines of communication are very open. Um, we can speak to each other very frankly, and we don't have to schedule that kind of stuff. We don't have to worry about being very open and honest with one another because it's something that's already important within our relationship. So it gives us a lot of tools to be a good working pair as well. It becomes important to separate that. Um, especially, I think, when you're in the home, if, if anyone's listening who is in a romantic relationship and a working relationship, I think they'd agree and if they haven't learned it yet, then I hope that maybe I can share a bit of experience and knowledge um, to help. But I think it becomes very important to separate those things and whatever you're dealing with in the home doesn't have a place in the studio and whatever you're dealing with in the studio, it doesn't have a place in the home. Of course, if your home is also a home office, uh, then it, it you know you have to schedule, you have to schedule a little. and, and There are times when you need to not talk about work. And if you're in the studio and it's like, oh, I forgot to ask you that thing that I need you to do for me because, you know, rent is due or whatever it is, the studio is not the place, right? The studio is a place to work. So I think it definitely has its benefits in terms of the intimacy it brings and the comfortability that two creators can have with one another because I think communication is key. I think it's really the most important thing. And if two people are on a choreographic team, especially when working with a number of other people in the open way that we want to work with them, which is a lot of sharing, not a lot of individual control per person. Everyone's really sharing in on the work, all this stuff. There are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So communication becomes very, very important. And it's important even more so between Emily and myself, that that communication is clear before we come into the studio so that we're on the same page. We're talking about the same things and we're not butting heads about things that we haven't bothered to address outside of the studio.
2: Yeah, that was good. If I may take a moment to be uh, extraordinarily self-serving and uh, and bring the discussion round to Bouge DC a little bit mm-hmm. because you both have uh, heavy interaction with uh, this little emerging dance festival uh which i i do have a hand in in producing every um every january you and
0: getting not so little
2: that's true we're coming up on our fifth anniversary which is really thrilling yay. for us yay um, so you've participated as co-choreographers, uh, submitting work to the Common Space Showcase to be reworked with the help of a mentor and then later came back to help mentor other artists going through the, uh, the showcase reworking process. I'm wondering if you could just speak briefly to what that experience was like for you both on the inside and being a mentor as well.
3: Being a part as Bougie DC as artists was so great because we revisited the Calculated Risk Project, which we had created on Jody Hagel and Anna Smootney, And then we revisited that same duet, those kind of the, the same movement vocabulary idea with two men. And that was the first time that we worked with Milan. And we also, um, Dave ended up being dancing in it As he said earlier about not having to jump in the work, he had to jump in the work. It didn't start with him, and then he had to jump in. So being a part of the festival was great. And the big thing for me, and I think I've told the team this many times, was it was a really supportive environment where it was about how far you can come, but not like you're on your own. And let's see how well you do. All of the resources were there for us and um, the Bouchisi team had put us in line with Ken Roy as our as our mentor and even though we didn't have Ken in that many times it was so valuable for us as these youngins uh, on the outside making decisions to have someone with that much more experience than us just to say a few things and those few things I still think about and I still carry with me and of course very much in a Ken Roy way like just do it your job is to do it and do it well but that's something that really stays with me so having that opportunity was really valuable to how I think and how I create and being able to revisit a work, I think, is incredibly important. I think we don't do that enough. Uh, and we, have a, we learn a lot once we've put out the baby, and then we kind of need to let the baby grow up. And being able to have a separation from your material is really healthy, and you can see things with a much more ob- objective point of view. And I think that that's really relevant to creating good work. As uh, a mentor for for Bougie C. I, I worked with uh, Maxime and I also worked with Michaela and I mean I love working with artists I mean that's pretty much the bottom line <laughs> I, I love talking to people about their ideas and especially when we're at the beginning of our choreographic path or our performance path I think we feel shy to to Put ourselves out there. I mean, we want to, but we feel shy about, um, well, is this okay? Or what do you think of that? And I feel like it's really important for me as a mentor to be able to help shape those ideas also by giving them direction and confidence. Uh, if you believe that what you have to offer is something important for you and you think it's special, then utilize that showcase that start believing in your work and and be mature about it asking questions and I think that's really important for a mentor to be able to give to I don't want to say a younger artist but someone who's maybe just in the first let's say 5 years of their of their creative endeavors and so for the festival to start something like this I think it's calling upon what we need to make good art and that, to me, is awesome.
0: I think Bourges DC is a really important festival that's, uh, that's really establishing itself as, as something necessary that hasn't been addressed yet, which is this really these first few years out of school um, or in, in otherwise your professional career when you're not necessarily making work yet that's at a hugely professional level, but you're definitely at a point where you've learned a thing or two since graduating from school. And I think that's a really interesting place to be. And when you're in that place you're really ripe for information and input and like emily was saying encouragement um you know not no one's going to come to your show yet because no one knows who you are or what you have to say so being part of a family like that a uh, community encourages that and having a mentor on your side to help you and like Emily was saying, also, you know, challenge you and ask you questions, I think all of these things are, are very important. We're working with a mentor right now. You know, we, we were given a, a fantastic mentorship residency by Cirque Est for La Chute, working with Melanie Demers. And, you know, several years later, after taking part in Bouge d'Issy as young choreographers, we're still learning. So I mean, you always have an opportunity to learn from someone who's farther along than you. And it's always an enriching opportunity. I think coming back to Boucher, DC afterwards and being able to contribute and give back uh, was really great. I was working with Black Forest, which is a whacking duo by Axel and Martin, and being able to work with these young ladies and, and see what they're bringing in their own exploration. Uh, you know, everyone's working on their own subjective thing, and, and being able to take part in that is is really a beautiful thing. The other thing that's really nice about Bouge DC is I think it allows people, given the the mandate of taking pre-existing work and reconfiguring it and then imposing also a slight time frame on that, um, is it allows young choreographers to prepare something that they can then start putting out there to festivals, which isn't always easy to do right out of school your school work isn't necessarily going to be up to par with what festivals are looking for and this is a really nice opportunity for young choreographers to start developing work with a little more maturity working with a mentor who can challenge them a bit and develop like this first you know 10-15 minute work that then they can start offering and gaining more experience. So it really is a springboard for that, and that's something that Emily and I were able to do, and we were, we're really thankful to the Bouges du team for giving us that opportunity. It allowed us to open several other doors, and so I think the work that that, that whole team is doing is really important. There, I don't see anything... Uh, there are very few things happening out there within the, the community that are doing a, a similar thing, so I think it's, it's really great work. Pour la relève. Il y, a, il y en a quand même quelques autres oui, euh, dans des pussière, des pulsionnieres euh... des showcases euh, of thea nous sommes oui. ici euh, Ça aussi c'est un un bon showcase pour ce, ce genre d'affaires et plusieurs autres mais bouge d'ici c'est quand même un, c'est un milieu qui, qui qui n'avait pas ça avant euh, oui. donc je trouve ça vraiment super
2: well, thank you so much, guys. Uh, you, your timing couldn't be better because applications are now out for the Common Space Showcase. So everyone should go to b o u g e d i c i. B-O-U-G-E-D-I-C-I.com and you can fill out your application. They're due October 11th. So go do that.
1: You can check out Parts and Labour Dance, which have been programmed by Tangente for a full evening as part of their 2013-14 season, which will premiere the new work, which we've heard of in the show, in mixed company, along with a reconstructed version of La Chute. So this is October 31st to November 2nd at 7.30 at Monument National, and you have a matinee on November 3rd at 4 p.m.
2: And how is that what does that mean to be able to uh to show your work at Tangente? That must feel good
0: It feels really, really great amazing The whole team has been really really supportive right from the start, and we're just we're just thrilled to be a part of it it's something that was very important to us um, in terms of uh, first step in our uh, in the next part of our our professional career. And it's it's a place that we really wanted to really jump off from um, and start at. Um, So we're very, very happy. And they've been, like I said, incredibly supportive. Um, We couldn't be happier.
2: All right. So you've got this upcoming big show. Uh, You've got your website that's just been launched last week. You're uh, starting a parts and labor newsletter to get the word out there. Uh, What does this launch mean for you guys? And what does it mean for the future of this collaborative company?
0: In the same respect that uh, we were talking just earlier about Bougedissie and about the opportunity to create work that young choreographers can then begin putting out there, for us, this is a similar idea where we're focused on creating our first work of this length, which is you know in the 45-50 minute range. And so the opportunity that Tangent has given us, um, especially with the idea of this full evening, to not only create this first work, but then also treat La Chute, as we were talking about earlier in the program, um, with the proper time and consideration to make it a deeper, more substantial work, is to now have these two pieces that we can hopefully modify and and let grow and perform at other places. And so I think these are two works that we're going to be uh, trying to get out there a lot more
3: so with the launch of parts and labor dance it's basically putting our voice out there as a team uh dave and i work independent of one another we both do other things outside of working together as creators and choreographers but we want to take this opportunity with the two new works that are going to be a part of the full evening at tangent to put the word out about uh our company together and the future that that may hold which we're hoping will be many many years to come and of course we're hoping that um, both of the pieces will have an opportunity to be shown again and in in different places in in Canada and the world um, eventually but more than anything we want to put parts and labor dance out into the world not just David and Emily that's what's really important for us about the launch and, uh, of course, there's all sorts of things that you can check out that are associated with things we put out, like our newsletter. Of course, we have Facebook, Instagram, all the social media things that are up to date, where we are going to be posting videos, teasers, photos, anything to kind of be able to have a lens into our process and what we are able to show to people outside, not just the product and coming to the show. Um, We're also doing an Indiegogo campaign to raise just a little bit more money to kind of complete the process uh, of this huge show that's going to take place at Tangente. We're employing a lot of people and we just need a
2: little bit more help. Is there any insider information that you guys can give us on uh, the future of parts and labor dance?
3: After this huge creative endeavor, which we've shared with a lot of collaborators, um, Dave and I have decided to then again focus inside. So we just got a residency in Berlin just for the two of us for an entire month to live and work in a gallery space to be able to just have a creative exchange between the two of us. And we couldn't be more thankful for that opportunity.
2: That sounds incredible. Wow. Wow just before we say goodbye, could you introduce the music that we're going to play that's going to be used in your upcoming show at Tangente?
0: Yeah, sure. Here's a a little composition that I'm currently working on called Noah, that will have its place at some point in our show.
2: Great. Thank you both so much for coming in. We've been speaking with uh, David Albert Toth and Emily Gualtieri from Parts and Labour Dance, and congratulations on the launch of your company.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Thank you for having us. Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com.
1: Dirty Feet
2: is produced and hosted by Alison Burns, JD Papillon, and Joanie Farah. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet and find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcasts.
1: Listen to past episodes on the website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word.
2: Tune in next week for a whole new show.